Describe yourself in three words. That is a really great question. It's um, <laughs> it's one that um, that makes me think it it should be easy to do, and yet it's it's pretty challenging. So, I would say um, I'm someone who is optimistic um, at baseline and bring a certain level of optimism to everything I do. Um, I would also say critical. And that can work in my favor or against me, <laughs> but often helps when critiquing medicine and public health, quite frankly. And I would also say uh, maybe my third word would be um, humble. So hi, everyone. Welcome to Global Health Lives. I'm Dylan Davenkumar, and I'm joined today by Dr. Michelle Morse, the Chief Medical Officer of the New York City Department of Health. Hi, Michelle. Lovely to speak to you again. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Um, so I think we first met on a panel a few years ago uh, discussing issues of racism. And this was after the murder of George Floyd and in the first peak of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I know that's a difficult place to start, but I wonder if I can take you back there first. Um, you took up the job as Chief Medical Officer in this kind of environment. Can you talk a little about the kinds of work you did in the pandemic, being at that front line of, of public health? Yeah, thank you for the question. And I have to say, um, it's so important for us to continuously put ourselves back in that moment and in that period, because in some ways, I think it's a bit of a trauma response in a way to really try to put it behind us and in some ways pretend it, it didn't happen or it isn't happening mm -hmm. and um, move forward. And in fact, our practice of memory is so important um, when we think about our approach to racial justice and health equity. And so I do try my best to build up my muscles for, for um, you know, just my own ability to process these past three, three years and speak about them um, clearly and not forget how important it is to speak about them. The first thing I'll say is, uh, in fact, when, when uh, I was still working in Washington, D.C. on the Ways and Means Committee, and uh, just a few months after the pandemic really was in, in full swing, I had the honor, actually, of uh, taking some time away from the Hill very briefly um, to work with the Movement for Black Lives, actually. Um, and this was just a few weeks after the murder of George Floyd, and there was uh, just incredible and spontaneous mobilization happening across the streets all across America and the world, um, both as a, as a result, I think, of the intensity of the pandemic, as well as the tragedy um, and, and uh, just incredible outrage um, from the murder of George Floyd. And uh, believe it or not, that was a that was actually part of my first real response in public health um, to COVID mm -hmm. was working with the Movement for Black Lives around a mobilization they were doing in Washington, D.C. Uh, to both honor George Floyd's life and to um, have some really critical conversations about what abolition could look like in the time of COVID and um, the response to the COVID pandemic and all of the profound and completely preventable racial inequities mm. and uh, economic inequities that we were seeing play out 
um, in terms of the impacts of COVID. Um, so that was a, a really powerful experience actually to help to organize a health team um, that was supporting the mobilization um, and offering guidance around how to protect um, the folks who were mobilizing as a part of the march and uh, as as a you know as a team also really tracking the COVID data and making calls about the safety of mobilizing um, in that time. Um, so that was at the forefront of my mind when I started my role as the, the first ever chief medical officer for the New York City Health Department in February of 2021. And at that time, of course, the COVID vaccination campaign was just kicking off in the U.S. I had the chance actually in my first days in this role um, of going to Canarsie, which is a part of New York City that's in Brooklyn, um, that had had some of the worst impacts from COVID in terms of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, right. and was involved in actually vaccinating people at the vaccination pods in those first days. It was extremely emotional. People were crying uh, in line to get their COVID vaccination, both right. out of joy and fear. Yeah. And so that was a really profound moment for me in my first days. And tell me about the kinds of work that you do and how you work with different groups of people? It is quite expansive. I think it represents the expansive nature of public health. And mm. what I love about public health, of course, is that we really get to bring the social and structural analysis, mm. as well as the behavioral analysis, um, and really get to move outside of the biomedical sphere, outside of the healthcare sphere, um, while also connecting to it. Um, in the U.S., part of the challenge with a role like this, of course, is that our system is completely fragmented and public health and healthcare are completely separate. So part of what I was hired to do was to help to bridge that gap. Um, and part of the role, uh, as I defined it and worked to develop a, a plan around um, how this role could contribute to both the COVID crisis as well as kind of the long-standing fracture between public health and healthcare in the U.S., um, was really looking also at how we bring anti-racism into our policies and practices and how we advance institutional accountability with a special focus on accountability for healthcare institutions on health equity. So some of the kinds of uh, programs and policies that we've been working on as a part of this role uh, and as a part of my role also leading a division that's focused on health equity. It's called the Center for Health Equity and Community Wellness. Um, is uh, number one, we developed and launched a coalition uh, called the Coalition to End Racism and Clinical Algorithms has 11 members, including the largest health systems across the city. And the three goals of the coalition are to end race adjustment in clinical algorithms. Mm. And race adjustment is a practice essentially that normalizes racial inequities and in health outcomes instead of trying to end them. The second goal is to really look at how um, racial equity in healthcare is advanced through the ending of those tools. And the third is really around um, a patient engagement plan so that patients themselves understand um, the changes in the way these algorithms are used so that their care um, that might have been delayed or harmed uh, is actually advanced. Another kind of initiative that we're doing as a part of this scope of work um, is actually we worked with managed care organizations um, across the whole entire city uh, to incentivize um, providers to reach out to their unvaccinated patients with phone calls, text messages, uh, mailings, and other communications to really encourage those patients to come in. And it actually paid the providers to counsel their patients. And that sounds like it should be something that's already happening, but believe it or not, um, with our insurers and uh, insurance companies and managed care organizations, 
Um, that was not something that was actually paid for for providers to do. Uh, and so our partnership with all the large um, managed care organizations and insurers across the city um, to push them to really pay their providers for this counseling um, and vaccination of unvaccinated patients was incredibly powerful as a great example of bridging public health and healthcare in a fragmented system. Thank you. And um, in my other podcast, the Race and Health podcast, we have an episode on renal race correction. Yes. It's used in kidney disease. And, and you've kind of been a guest on that podcast as well. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't know about renal race corrections. And I think maybe it's something that doesn't happen in pediatrics or that's what someone told me. So I'd never come across this and mm-hmm. then kind of found out that this this is a thing. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. it's, it's extremely problematic. <laughs> And believe it or not, I don't know if you knew this history, but it um, part of the reason that race actually originally got integrated into the 1999 equation in the U.S. that was developed and kind of put forth as the gold standard for calculating kidney function was because there was an effort at that time, actually, to include more people of color in research studies. And that was an an initiative of the Clinton administration. And so at the time, it was believed, actually, that by naming black race in the equation, that we were being more racially equitable and health equity oriented, when in fact, the impact, right, the actual um, downstream effects of including race in this way, even though there were only 197 black people, uh, quote unquote, black people, this was actually not even self-identified race, race was identified by the researchers, the impact was that black people's uh, kidney function classification led to delayed mm. n- uh, notification about uh, concerns about kidney disease and delayed referral to um, nephrologists, kidney specialists, led to delayed referral for transplant, kidney transplant evaluation, et cetera. So the belief uh, and the yeah. intention, I guess, was to be more racially inclusive. And in fact, the algorithm and the calculator that came out of that effort yeah was one that delayed care for black people and harmed care for black people. I, I, I didn't realize the intention behind it. Um, so it, it, it feels like there's this kind of tension between the private health providers and the public or community-based organizations. Is that, is that something that's real or do you, you manage to, to move between them easily? That is, I would say, the thing that keeps me up at night. Um, <laughs> you honed right in on the heart of it. Um, because you're absolutely right. Not only is public health fragmented and separated and siloed from healthcare, um, but at least in the New York City context, healthcare and community-based care and community-based social care, community-based organizations are also quite separate. Um, and the way that we finance healthcare in this country really exacerbates that fragmentation mm-hmm. with the majority, the large majority of the dollars in our system going to healthcare and very little going to community-based organizations. Um, there are some great models of how healthcare organizations are working with community-based organizations. Um, the Community Coalition in Brooklyn is one example. There are many, many others. Um, but I will say that some healthcare systems, particularly those that are what we call safety net systems, they serve disproportionately publicly insured, uninsured, um, and people living in poverty and of course tend to serve more people of color, those safety net institutions uh, in healthcare tend to be the ones that really prioritize building models of care that integrate and partner with community-based organizations Mm -hmm. and frankly fund community-based organizations to do this work. 
And I do think that there's a lot more to do to make sure that that connection between community-based social and healthcare and healthcare systems, the larger healthcare systems, particularly the academic medical systems, um, improves and also is more aligned. In fact, um, our Medicaid uh, program and Medicaid in the United States is the health insurance program um, that covers the majority of people who who live in poverty, who live below the poverty line in the U.S. Um, It's one of our most important programs. In fact, half of all of the deliveries of babies in the U.S. are to beneficiaries of Medicaid, so to people um, who are living in poverty. And that program is actually working right now to develop um, a better initiative to connect community-based organizations to healthcare organizations because of this acknowledgement that social inequities drive healthcare uh, and healthcare outcomes more than we would like to admit. So it's really, again, bridging yet another gap in our siloed system. Brilliant. Thank you. So if we move on to the next question. So you grew up in West Philadelphia in one of the poorest parts of one of the poorest cities in the USA uh, in a predominantly black neighborhood. And it seemed like your environment and your upbringing really shaped your understanding of racism. Um, Your mother was a school teacher who uh, made sure you learn about black history. um, And your father ran a funeral home. And one thing I didn't know was that burials were segregated and you spent a lot of time seeing black people die early. Um, Can you talk a little about growing up in West Philadelphia and what you learned from your parents? Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, it truly, the way my mom raised me is um, both the only reason I became a physician, it's the reason um, I have any understanding of social inequity and the impacts of racism. And, um, and, you know, I think I would say we were lucky, right? My mom had a stable job as a public school teacher. She had health insurance. Mm. We had health insurance. We had stable housing. Um, but the surroundings in which we grew up, um, you know, it was absolutely normal to see um, folks uh, using drugs on every corner. It was absolutely normal to see, um, you know, the police everywhere. It was absolutely normal to hear gunshots. Um, These were all things that were um, very much a part of my upbringing. And so seeing that, but also seeing what I could learn from my mom as as a public school teacher again, and seeing the way in which she encouraged me and my sister Um, to have a thirst for learning, to be passionate about, um, you know, raising our own consciousness and understanding the world. Um, You know, I I always say she taught me how to learn, and that is the greatest gift you can give anyone. So I'm so thankful for the way she raised us. And um, of course, it was impossible to um, blind us from the setting in which we were growing up. And I think there were a lot of really important ways that my mom exposed us to the history of Black people in this country and the pride that we should have in it. Uh, in fact, there's such a powerful history of Black educators um, in this country that I think that was the tradition that she really brought to bear the most. So mm-hmm. um, it truly, I think, allowed me to see this country in a different way, to not assume Black inferiority, um, and to also just be proud of um, the, the incredible contributions Black people have made to this country mm-hmm. and to medicine mm-hmm. and to public health. And, and tell me a little about seeing the kind of health inequalities as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just have these memories and I was raised by my mom. My parents divorced when I was very, very young, but I still remember the days that I would be at my dad's funeral home. And, you know, there were sometimes coffins of children. Um, There were often coffins that held young people. Mm. Um, 
it was just such a normalized part of my upbringing. And then I started to realize that those health outcomes were not happening for everybody in Philadelphia. It was Black people. Um, And when I spent some time in Botswana, I saw the same thing happening, very, very young people dying. Um, And making those connections and understanding that that was not normal, in fact, that that was not happening for everybody, that was specifically happening for Black people, was a real awakening and also a real heartbreaking um, series of of social and health connections that I started to make. But it was so obvious as a kid, um, just based on the number of funerals I would go to, as well as the the people that I would see um, who were passing at a young age. It was was very much present in my consciousness from an early age. Thank you. Um, So... You, you then went to university in West Virginia in Charlottesville, and this was quite a contrasting place, uh, a place with a history of slavery, but also the largest population of black undergraduates in the US. You majored in French with a focus on political ideas and then returned home to Penn Medical School, where you were the only one out of 600 students who was from West Philadelphia. Can you tell me a bit about those two institutions and also how you coped at this time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, interestingly, University of Virginia, where um, I, I went to university, was a uh, a place that wasn't quite as well known as it is now. And unfortunately, after the murder of Heather Heyer um, and the white supremacist marches, mm-hmm. Charlottesville, which is where uh, University of Virginia is located, became very uh, well known. Yeah. And those dynamics were s- extremely present when I was an undergrad there from 1999 to 2003. Um, I remember seeing fraternities have Halloween parties where they would dress up in blackface. Um, I remember our provost made these profoundly racist comments and had to step down. That happened yeah. in my first year at university. Um, a friend of mine who's a black woman ran for student body president and, uh, you know, she was actually physically attacked by two wow. people, um, ended up in the emergency room and was called the N word and, and was, you know, by these attackers was uh, said, we don't want any uh, N word for president. So wow. that was the climate. Um, but that climate was not new. That was a climate that had been a part of the legacy and founding of that university it was Thomas Jefferson's plantation. Um, and that's, uh, that is the, the grounds and space that eventually uh, became the University of Virginia. So not surprising. Um, and at Penn, uh, back home in Philadelphia, you know, uh, University of Penn and Penn Medical School, is, you know, it's a renowned and elite Ivy League institution. And it's located in West Philly, where I grew up, which, again, is a, is a neighborhood that has experienced profound disinvestment um, and and impacts of structural racism. And to see this elite institution um, uh, in West Philly um, really build its own ivory tower, this is a very classic sense of the word, and um, not contribute uh, almost anything at all to the community in which it was based. Uh, and over the decades that Penn's been located there, um, very little improvements in the population health and health equity of the community that uh, the university sits in. And then, as you said, just the dynamic of me being the only person at that med school from that community mm-hmm. uh, tells you really everything you need to know about segregation, access to higher education, uh, the ways in which elite institutions exclude the communities that they're located in. The same is true for Johns Hopkins and the Henrietta Lacks story, of course, uh, that so many people know, um, and many of the elite universities across the U.S., 
um, have that same dynamic of mm. uh, exclusion of a local community and and upholding of uh, what I would say would be you know elite values um, that are very much in opposition to the values of health equity. And tell me a little bit about some of your clinical interactions there in, in Penn. Yeah, they were difficult. And it's funny, looking back now, it's so obvious. And as a student, I was constantly stressed and perplexed and um, unsure of how to act and respond. But um, I remember nurses um, when I was in medical school at Penn um, using incredibly uh, derogatory language towards um, black people who were seeking care at Penn, particularly mm -hmm. in the emergency department. Um, uh, terms like piss poor protoplasm, which is really kind of a legacy of eugenics yeah. in many ways, yeah. right? It's a, a genetic determinism um, yeah. uh, made into plain language. But you can imagine if you thought that that's what someone was, how would you care for them? Yeah. How would you treat their complaints and their symptoms? And, um, you know, how would you ensure their humanity in the care that you were providing? And it'd be pretty difficult to do. Um, and I saw that over and over and over again. Um, and it wasn't just the nurses, it was also the attending physicians. Um, and so to be from that community, to be a black woman as a med student there, and to yeah. be surrounded um, by, I would say, very few uh, people who um, were thinking about and centering health equity and racial justice in their practice. Uh, it was an incredibly challenging experience. Uh, and it was one that I, I continue to think of often when I try to show up differently when I'm taking care of patients today or when I'm doing the work of public health in, in New York City. And that's so it's so shocking, but so openly shocking. Yes. And, and I guess for you, that kind of juxtaposition of, you know, coming from that neighborhood, but being educated in this different environment. That's right. I, I suppose I'm curious as to how, how you felt at that time. Yeah, you know, I, I will say one of the things that kept me going um, was that I did have a handful of other black students and who are some of my closest friends to this day. Um, we really looked out for each other and took care for each other because I wasn't the I might have been the only one from West Philly, mm. um, but I certainly wasn't the only one who was noticing these same concerns and trends. I think we also at the time felt that it might have been hard for us, but it was way harder for the West Philly community that um, was deserving of high quality care and wasn't really getting it. Yeah. Um, and we thought also it was really important for us to still be present at institutions like that to to push for change from the inside or at least to um, ask the critical questions um, and to, to try to uh, not, as, as Bell Hook says, not uh, cede the space to the fools, right? Uh, to actually be present in those spaces mm. um, to, to push them uh, to change from the inside. Thank you for describing that. Um, I want to just talk a little bit about some of the work you did overseas. So as, as you mentioned, you went to Botswana and then when you returned, you um, you joined the Partners in Health Global Equity Residency Program. And in that, you started by going to Haiti. Um, can you talk about Partners in Health and then your time in Haiti, please? Absolutely, yeah. Well, interestingly, as a first year med student at Penn, I met um, two people, Evan Lyon and Jill Petty. Um, and both of them had been working with Partners in Health, in fact, Two of my fellow medical students, uh, Scarlett Soriano and Peter Roloff, were the people who introduced me to Partners in Health back in 2003. And uh, I read that 
famous book, Mountains Beyond Mountains, that was about kind of the journey that Paul Farmer uh, was taking. And in 2008, when I started that residency program, Paul became one of my mentors. And what was powerful about my first trip to Haiti with Partners in Health in 2009 was so many things, but certainly speaking French helped um, uh, in speaking with the nurses and doctors. But it was really seeing what it looks like to not sit in an ivory tower and wait for people to come and see you, mm. but to actually bring social and health care to the communities that needed it most, and to do so in a way that was about not what we wanted, but was about what they wanted. And to, instead of uh, separating community from healthcare, it was to say, actually, the community leads the care. And the model that I saw specifically was a community health worker model in rural Haiti. Um, I got to participate in home visits with community health workers, in mobile clinics, in, um, again, really um, bringing um, the care to the people in the language they wanted at the time that they wanted in the places that they wanted it. Um, and that was so dramatically different from what I had experienced in West Philly right. or, uh, you know, in uh, almost all of my training in the United States. Um, and it really stuck with me. It really stuck with me. It was uh, a completely different ideology um, and a very, very different care delivery model. And it was working. Um, you know, when I first went in 2008, Partners in Health and Zami La Santé. Zami La Santé is the Haitian-led sister organization to Partners in Health. They had already been treating people for HIV AIDS in rural Haiti for over a decade at that point, which was far ahead um, of so many uh, places um, in the global south, in fact. And to see that and the impact of that, to see people um, uh, just surviving with HIV AIDS for many years at that point um, was so powerful and so clear. Um, so the products and the fruits and the impact were, um, were just very obvious. And then um, to be able to also kind of understand how that model could work back in Boston mm. or here in New York City yeah. um, has been one of the greatest um, hopes um, and uh, sources of optimism for me because uh, the truth is the models are out there. And, and often what the problem is, is that we don't implement those models. <laughs> uh, we implement something else. Yeah. And so... Um, that experience, um, you know, really starting to understand the model of Zami La Santé and Partners in Health um, really just blew my mind and expanded uh, my understanding of what the solutions to health inequities could be. And, and tell me, because uh, I think just after you came back, the earthquake happened in Haiti, and then you went back to Haiti after that, is that right? That's right. That's right. About six months after my first um, working trip in Haiti, uh, the earthquake happened. It, uh, of course, was one of the most tragic, um, uh, unplanned, unnatural disasters um, over, of the past several decades. Over 300,000 people lost their lives. And um, I had the honor of being a part of the response. And um, I was working uh, at the main um, public hospital in Port-au-Prince, actually, for several weeks. Um, uh, a couple months after the earthquake happened, and then also had the honor of actually co-founding an organization called Equal Health that was really focused on, um, you know, how could we do better than just being another one of the 10,000 nonprofit organizations mm -hmm. that were working in Haiti at the time, but um, to do so really in partnership with our colleagues and friends in Haiti. Um, and they were the folks who were telling us, we need a long-term plan 
to rebuild health professionals education in Haiti. And that was because the medical school, the nursing school, uh, and the main teaching hospital were all destroyed in the earthquake. And so that's what we really set out to do with Equal Health. And we've done so through, I would say, partnership and through teaching and learning social medicine in partnership with our colleagues in Haiti and have you know, expanded to do so in partnership with other organizations and merged actually with another organization that does similar work in Uganda. Um, mm-hmm. And so have, have really... Um, I would say, evolved our thinking and our model over the years. But um, a lot of the thinking really started with um, both understanding the destruction in Haiti and also understanding the need for a really long-term vision that's both about implementation as well as ideology and politics um, to really um, build back uh, for the long term. And certainly, you know, Haiti is in one of its most challenging moments uh, right now. Um, but we all agreed that, you know, the resources we have for training in the United States, um, it was just unfair that our colleagues and mm-hmm. friends in Haiti didn't have that. And so uh, I would say that that work continues and it's generational work. It certainly is is not going to be done in a few years. Yeah, thank you. Um, so my final question is just to talk a little bit about, I guess, the state of the, the USA and its effects on you personally. Um as we were talking last time, you talked about the increasing prominence of white supremacy in, in the US and and how that's led to attacks on you online and then physical pictures of you being shown at Nazi protests. Um, what's this been like? And, and if you could talk just a little bit about the country as a whole, but then its its impact on you at a personal level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's really the elephant in the room, right? I mean, I, my day-to-day work here in New York City is so is so focused on public health response and building systems and policies and all the things that we love to do. Um, But it's all happening in the context of our country really kind of just in some ways destroying itself from the inside with lies, with allowing many, many lies to to prosper and to grow unchecked, um, both online and in real life as well. And I think that that Um, central lie, the central lie of the founding of our country, and that central, um, I would say, kind of um, erasure of the truth of our founding in settler colonialism and enslavement, um, and the ways in which, you know, some people, um, and certainly white supremacist movements, um, have sought to erase that truth, is, is a fundamental driver of and fundamental limit to anything we can do in the health equity Mm -hmm. movement and the racial justice movement. And if we don't acknowledge that and talk about it in that way and organize around it and against it, all of our dreams for health equity will never come to fruition. Um, And I think that that is the reality of what I experienced personally over the past few years is having to face that truth Um, that we can't pretend that that's not happening in our country. We can't pretend that somehow we can work around it. We have to confront it head on. Mm. We have to acknowledge it head on and we have to build movement strategies um, and grassroots organizing to protect our country from that lie and to continuously center the truth of our founding as well as the truth of the possibilities of a racially just and equitable future. Um, it was personally incredibly painful, 
um, and scary and challenging to have to, uh, you know, face the, those attacks that, you know, as you mentioned, happen both online and um, through text messages and phone calls and um, neo-Nazi marches on the lawn of our hospital with, mm-hmm. you know, photos of myself and Dr. Brown Wispaway, one of my colleagues, because of the health equity work we were doing at the hospital, right? The white supremacists were trying to say that we were racist. And in fact, what we were doing was trying to correct at least a decade of institutional racism in heart failure care at our hospital. So that twisting of truth um, in the name of free speech is, you know, one of the most fundamental and existential threats to our country right now. Um, And unless we acknowledge that and make sure that the the gears of government are designed to protect marginalized communities and people of color and not in any way allow those lies to infiltrate um, or to shape the way that government uh, delivers services and care and instead actually um, push um, and force and oil the gears of government to um, show up for communities of color and acknowledge and redress that history. Um, if we can't do that, I, I don't see a future for the health equity movement or the racial justice movement. So it's a part of the reason I, I joined city government and uh, joined government in the first place. And um, and I think we have to keep that dream alive and all of the civil servants across this country, either in local or state or federal uh, work, have to keep that dream alive and actually have to push from the inside of government to make sure that we protect people of color and you know speak the truth about our history. So it's been uh, quite a journey, quite an unexpected one. If you had told me five years ago that the research we were doing at our institution would lead to neo-Nazis marching on our lawn, I never would have believed you. And yet that is the reality of our country right now. So I do, um, I continue to try to um, maintain both my optimism and my critical lens. Um, but I will say it has been uh, exhausting. Yeah. And uh, it has also led to me building far more tools for my own care and balance and um, equilibrium, and has also allowed me to really go so much deeper um, into the friendship relationships and, and other um, community um, relationships that I have because it's been uh, just so necessary for my own survival and my own um, nourishment of my optimism. Thank you. And it just sounds incredible. Someone who's working on health equity in relation to heart failure is someone who's targeted. Um, the last word you mentioned about optimism, are, are you optimistic? I have to be, you know, it's optimism is a choice in some ways and, and it's certainly a practice and, and again, has to be nourished and invested in. Uh, I would say for maybe the first uh, three or so decades of my life, it just came naturally with very little investment. Nice. Um, and the past decade or so has required a lot more um, practice um, nice. uh, than natural, <laughs> um, natural kind of uh, um, starting point. But um, I have to be, you know, I have to be. Thank you. So th- thank you very much, Michelle. Um, th- thank you for joining me. It's, it's really great to hear about the work you've done, especially the impact of your work on public health, but but also speaking so candidly about the impact this work has had on you. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you to my guest, Michelle Morse. 
This episode was produced by me with editing by Sam Gomberg. The theme song is Paper Stars by Lee Maiden. This is a Global Health Times podcast. Thank you for listening.